Welcome to Beyond Bite Wings, the business side of dentistry, brought to you by Edwards & Associates PC. Join us as we discuss how to build your dental practice, optimize your income, and plan for your future. This podcast is distributed with the understanding that Edwards & Associates PC is not rendering legal, accounting, or professional advice. Listeners should consult with their business advisors before acting on any of the information that is shared. At Edwards & Associates PC, our business is the business of dentistry. For help or more information, visit our website at enassociates.com. Hello and welcome to another episode of Beyond Bite Wings. In today's episode, we will be talking about financial benchmarks for a dentist. And within the studio, we have Robert. Good afternoon. And myself, Ash. It's going to be fun to talk about everybody's favorite topic, right? numbers. Yay. Hey, but it's not taxes. <laughs> That's also true. <laughs> That's also true. You don't have to pay IRS. Everybody's tuning us out because we're accountants talking about numbers. How interesting can that be? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know what? Actually, the way we're going to go about it, we're actually going to show them the fun side of us. Oh, well, I hope you're good at that. <laughs> no, we will. We will. I, I think that's something we actually do on a regular basis, but we don't realize it. Otherwise, honestly, wouldn't you hate your job? I would if, if it was only numbers. We don't just talk about numbers. I love numbers. They're just like a reference point, really. And I think- They're Like a scorecard. Scorecard. And we also elaborate on what they mean, right? Let's talk about everybody's favorite number. What number is too much on everybody's financial statement? Ah, like too high according to too the owners? Too high as a percentage of collections. Rent. Rent, yes. You know, how much should rent be as a percentage of a practice collections? Well, here's the thing. I know I have some stats in front of me. I am going to code these stats so they understand what they are. However, I feel like some flexibility is also required because you have to first understand that these stats that we have in front of us are national averages. And depending on where your practice is at, maybe it's an uptown part of a city or in a neighborhood where... Or in a rural area. Or even in a rural yeah. area where currently there aren't enough commercial properties that are being leased out for dental usage. So keeping all of those things in mind, why don't you share it? Well, rent should be a little over 5% of mm -hmm. your collections. And it's crazy, but you know, in the current environment, especially in major metropolitan areas like Dallas, Denver, most California, Seattle, you know, lots of big major metropolitan areas, you can't do that. You can't keep rent down to 5%. So what I do for a client is I'll, I'll look at their rent and I'll do that math. I'll say, okay, your collection should be, you know, 20 times this, that way it's, it's 5%, but 20 times this would be their target collections. But sometimes that's just a, you know, I mean, a huge number that right. they're nowhere close to. Right. So then we just have to look at, you know, what can it be to be reasonable? But you can't do anything about rent. It is what it is. It's not going to change. It's going to go up. It's mm -hmm. not going to go down. That's true. You know, until you're at the end of your lease, it might go down, but I doubt it. Uh, so you've just got to manage it properly. Right, right, right. So rent theoretically should be around five to five and a half times or, or percent of your collections. And the biggest component of an office's overhead is, of course, salaries. Right, bingo. That's, team, that was what team I was Team salaries. Yes. 
And and I've seen everything from, you know, 29% down to 23%. And I think uh, the stats we have in front of us, if you add them all up, it's about 26%. Mm-hmm. Um, and that includes the payroll taxes. Right. Now, we are talking about a practice that primarily has only one one dentist. One dentist. Yes. Okay. That's correct. Of course, for larger practices and for specialists, it's different. Okay. But so this is a general dentistry. One general dentist. Uh, I think somewhere in the range of 26% is is very reasonable. With if you the, want to further break that down for them, you know, yeah, between, yeah, between yeah. the- No, the, absolutely. So a lot of times, you know, you, you would want to know more specifically, okay, so for my front desk people, what should that percentage be? Well, based off the stats that I have in front of me, it should be around 8%. Right. Um, for the hygiene department, even though I don't agree with these numbers, <laughs> especially in uh, today's standards. In today's environment, yeah. Yeah, because yeah, it says it should be around 9%. And then finally, you know, chairside dental assistants and other clinical assistants, there should be around 6.3%. Yeah. Uh, right. So total all that up and then throw in the payroll tax. Payroll taxes add about another 3% to mm-hmm. that. Yeah. Add all that up and throw in the payroll taxes, you're looking at 26%. Right. And so one big area that I think really a lot of our clients are negligent in is, especially as doctors get older, I mm-hmm. think they get comfortable and they may have somebody working that they don't really need, but they've gotten comfortable. They've gotten not lazy, but it's just too easy to have an, an mm-hmm. extra person. Mm-hmm. And don't push anyone to work too mm-hmm. hard. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, I'm afraid to leave. You know, you don't. Right, right, right. But 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 then you know that's causing your overhead to be higher than it should be. Right, 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 right. Because if you got rid of one person, that's a significant percentage. I agree. Yeah, that's true. And then, so how do you go about it? You know, so let's say you're worried about, oh, my team member expenses is getting too high because I recently had to give them crazy raises so they're happy and they don't leave me. But are they as efficient as they should be? Are they doing the things they should be? And and, and do you know if they're as efficient as they should be? That's true. I mean, if you need some front desk training, right. you know, we've got a person that can do that for you. You know, and and you can also get help in other areas. I mean, there's the scheduling institute. There's all kinds of areas where you can get help. But that's something that, you know, that we can help our clients with. And if you're not a client, ask us about it. Right. So you actually, you know, mentioned an important point there. So efficiency and, you know, their ability, their caliber. Well, and let me give you an example. This is kind of funny and this is real life. You know, I, I had a consultant that went into one of our clients' offices last month client down in South Texas. And uh, she went in and, and was working with the front desk person. And some of the other, I guess the chair side, were telling her that, telling the consultant that there's this one front desk person that's reading a book when she, you know, during the day. And she said, what the heck? You know, how does she have time to read a book? So she uh, confronted her about it. She said, well, you know, the person that I replaced told me when I didn't have anything to do, I should read this book. She even gave me the book. And it had nothing to do with the industry. It was some, oh, okay. some novel. No, no, it's just some novel. You know, and she said, "Well, how can you possibly have any time to read a book when you?" Well, she just didn't know what she didn't know. Right. But she also wasn't trying to learn. Mm. She was just doing what she was taught. True. So we retrained her, <laughs> and the practice. Gosh, I think in the first month after the consultant left, the practice was up almost ten percent in collections. Wow. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. 
consultants work, guys. And and everybody out there says, hey, consultants are expensive. Mm, nah, you know, what's expensive is not using somebody right. to their fullest right, right. talent. Right. And what you're saying by that is, you know, even if they are expensive, the return you get by employing them. Absolutely. It's in, it's in multiples. Absolutely. Multiple folds. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, it's a no-brainer. I mean, I've got one practice management consultant I know really, really well. And I've told her, I said, you know, when you go into a practice, you should charge a percentage of the increase in their collections. Oh. Because that's way more than her fee. True. Yeah. And, there you go. But yeah. I don't think it's really you know, I mean, fair to do that. But there might actually be some merit there. Mm, give me ideas. <laughs> but that's a, that's an area that that you need to really. You may not know as the dentist, you know everything. Especially if you're a young dentist, you may not know exactly what your front desk people are doing all the time, or what they should be doing, or how to fully utilize their abilities. And a consultant can help with that. She'll not only train them, but she'll train you so that you'll know what they should be doing, and give you some benchmarks to follow. Uh, so you don't want to have extra people hanging around. That's expensive. Mm -hmm. That's more, that costs you more than a consultant. Mm -hmm. That's true. Yeah. yeah. When you add them up for Absolutely. the whole year, you're like, oh my goodness. Absolutely. <laughs> what other areas are significant? Well, um, you know, I have quite a few categories here, but let me at least try to touch upon the ones that I feel like our listeners would be most interested in. So we talked about rent. We talked about team member expenses. Now let's talk about down supplies and lab fees. Dental supplies, and I'm not looking at what we have in front of us, but mm. historically, everybody has always said dental supplies should be between 6 and 8% of collections. Mm -hmm. What do they say here? And then what about seven point four or five? Seven, Yeah, 7.5. So good. That's like right yeah, in the middle. So not higher end. There you go. And lab fees, uh, generally lab fees should be somewhere between 8 to 10%. Uh -huh. Now, lab fees... Uh, can come down if you have an in-house printer, uh, you know, like Cirac or, or mm -hmm. E4D. Mm -hmm. If you're doing crowns in-house, then your lab fees should be a lot lower than that. Mm -hmm. Or if you're doing, when I look at our financial statements for our clients, if their lab fees are too low, mm -hmm. then that tells me that either they have an in-house uh, machine to create mm -hmm. crowns or they're not diagnosing enough crowns. Mm -hmm. They're doing too many fillings. So they're mm -hmm. I think conservative dentistry. So I always question them about that. That's something you need to think about. If your lab fees are below eight to ten percent, why are they that low? Right, right. See, that's a good way to go about it because it shouldn't be there. So you're saying that you know you shouldn't only be looking at if you're above the benchmark amounts, even if you're too low or below the benchmark. That should also be cause for concern. Yeah. Well, you should ask the question why. Okay. Yeah. Why? Dig mm -hmm. into it. You know, okay, mm -hmm. if this is below 8%, then right. why am I not paying more in lab right. fees? Right. Well, then I'm just not doing enough crowns. Right. And right. if you're not doing enough crowns, why aren't you? Is right. it because you're too conservative in diagnosing? Or is it because a lot of young doctors, maybe they're doing their own hygiene mm -hmm. and they don't have a hygienist yet. So mm -hmm. maybe they're not diagnosing those crowns. Mm -hmm. I don't know, but we would dig into the reasons. But it should be a point where you should ask the why, like, why is it not? Address it. Yes. 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 Address it. And as long as there's an answer, that's where your concern should stop. Right? Yes. And then you should do something about it. If you feel like there's some potential there. Absolutely. Okay. Okay. Good point. Now, I know in one of our earlier episodes, we were talking about some of the current trends of 2023 
and we touched upon how marketing or changing our marketing methods or improving it or looking at alternative methods on marketing your brand or your practice should be on your mind. And it is one of the more common questions that I get asked by my clients is what should be my marketing expense? So let me tell you something I learned a long time ago. When you're determining your marketing budget, don't look at your current collections to determine that budget. For instance, if you're collecting, let's say you're collecting $75,000 a month, $900,000 a year, and if your marketing budget's going to be 3%, okay, then you might think that's $27,000 a year. And if you do the math, it is. But that's not the right numbers to look at. Mm -hmm. If you're looking at a 3% marketing budget, you want that 3% to be of your target collections. So if your collections are currently 900,000, but you want it to be a million too, okay, then do 3% of a million too. So your budget would be 40,000 instead of 27. That'll get you up to that next level. But then also very, very important in a marketing budget, and we'll talk more about this tomorrow, but is how you spend the money. And don't just develop a marketing plan that's static. You know, try things, give them a few months, and if they don't work, discontinue it and try something different. And we've got all kinds of ideas and, and experience with our clients and trying different things. We can help give you some ideas. But the big issue here on marketing is around 3%, but 3% of your target collections, not 3% of last year's collections. Right. And it can be higher depending on where you're at. If you are trying to employ a new marketing program for the next six months, you don't necessarily have to stick to that 3%. Well, that's true. And also, obviously, if you're a startup, it's going to be higher because you've got no collections anyway. So any percentage is going to be blown out of proportion. Also, if you're in a rural area, Mm -hmm. it's, you know, probably less. If you're in an urban area... If you're in Frisco, Texas, it's going to be way <laughs> higher than 3%. You know, so, uh, you know, you've got to look at the individual situation, and, right. and that's what we do with our clients. But across the board, if you look at statistics, dental economics or whoever publishes their statistics, it's going to be around probably lower than 3%. But I'm telling you, 3% is, is what I'm reading in most of the dental publications, dental town, dental economics. A lot of those are, are telling you 3%. Mm. And let's talk a little bit about this, right? So this expense, am I going to pay this to just one marketing company per month? No. Okay. No, you're going to be paying probably somebody to send out maybe mailers. As old school as that is, it still works. For Uh, some clients, yes. For some clients. One thing I like a lot is billboards. Oh, that's really old school, (laughs) but it's really inexpensive. And you know something? I've never had a client tell me, hey, that didn't work. And so that's a big one. But in cities, sometimes you can't get billboards. You Mm -hmm. have to be in a more rural area for that to work well. Mm -hmm. Uh, But that's a big one. And then you're going to have a company that does your social media, a company or an individual that does your social media marketing. Uh, And then a lot of your marketing is not going to cost you a penny. That's just your your internal marketing. Yeah. You know, word of mouth from your existing patients. That's true. You know, you've got to, again, uh, I talked about training your front desk person. One Mm -hmm. thing they should be doing is actively asking your patients for Mm -hmm. referrals Mm -hmm. before they leave after their appointment. Mm -hmm. You know, you ask them for a review first, make sure they're happy. 
And then if they're happy, ask them for a referral. Tell right. your friends, you know, that's bring true. your family, whatever. That's but true. that's something they should be doing consistently. I see. So you're saying that a marketing program should not only consist of things for which you have to pay for. There could be a portion of it that's not going to cost you a penny. Absolutely. See? It's not going to cost you a penny more than you're already paying. There you go. Yeah. Because yeah. yeah. you're paying the of course, salary of, of course, the front desk person. Course, but, you know, course. yeah, sure. Yeah. So that's good. That's good. And some larger practices may hire a hygiene coordinator, and she'll do the marketing for to keep that department full. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's true. And, of course, and, hygiene, if it's done correctly, hygiene should be producing uh, – not producing in the sense of dentistry, but they should be creating or diagnosing the dentistry for the doctor to do. Right, right. That's true. So that's it pays true. for itself. What other expenses would you like to go over? Well, I think the big question that I get a lot of times is is – what should my profit be? Good. Percentage-wise, what mm-hmm. should my profit be? Mm-hmm. And, and again, all the dental publications, Dental Economics, Dental Town, all those people will tell you, hey, you should be taking home about a third of what you produce right. or collect. And for a general dentist. For a general dentist. One doctor practice. Okay. But you may think you're not making that much, but you, know, you have to define take-home. Take-home includes what you're paying the bank. Mm-hmm. Okay. Believe it or not, that's not overhead. Mm-hmm. That, sure, it takes cash flow, and why isn't it overhead? Well, that's equity. That's like making a principal payment on your house. You know, that's equity. That's not deductible. It's not an expense. Mm-hmm. Okay, what you're paying the bank, the interest is overhead, sure, but the principal reduction is is not overhead. So that's considered part of the doctor's take-home because when that loan's paid off, that money goes in your pocket. Right, exactly. So that's part of your equity in the practice. So you should be taking home or paying profit-wise about a third mm-hmm. of what you're collecting mm-hmm. before debt service. I see. And, of course, that take-home is profit plus salary plus other benefits. Benefits. Yes. Depending, so, very depending, depending on uh, how many things you're paying through the practice. If you're paying your car through the practice, that's mm-hmm. part of your profit. Mm-hmm. If you're mm-hmm. paying your wife through the practice, that's part of your profit. Mm-hmm. If you're paying your kids through the practice, that's part of your profit. Right, right. Hence, take home amount. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> now, continuing education, that's also another thing. A lot of times I feel like the people that have questions regarding continuing education, they're not just asking me about the fees they had to pay uh, to sign up for that class or that seminar. They're also asking me about trial expenses. Well, if you take a out-of-town continuing education course, then of course the travel expenses are deductible as well. So is the lodging and the meals while you're away. I tell everybody, Mm -hmm. if you're going out of town on business, then every cost you incur from the time you leave your front door until you return is deductible. And we have clients that, that literally spend six figures a year on continuing education. Yeah, if they're taking, let's say they're taking a 24-month implant course or something, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's over 100 grand, mm-hmm. man, but it's it's worth it if you mm-hmm. do that. Mm-hmm. Cosmetic courses, you know, they're expensive. Yeah. But I think the average for continuing education is, you know, really, I mean, this says less than 1%. I think that's probably pretty reasonable. Yeah, I would say you know, so. Somewhere in the, you know, three-quarter to 1% range. I would definitely agree with that. I'm looking at the numbers here. I'm like, yeah, that. It's typically what I see. Now, of course, there are a few people that are trying to diversify the services that they're providing. They may be taking some additional, I don't know, let's say Botoxy classes. I don't think those are very expensive. Uh, yeah. If they are the doctors not. are already, I think they're already have the ability to uh, do the injections. Uh-huh. But what if the class is in the Caribbean somewhere? <laughs> you know, they can add up. 
I might have to go down there and audit that class. (laughs) (laughs) And then again, going back to the travel expense. So just make sure that whenever you're trying to deduct your travel expense out of the business, it is for a reason that we call ordinary and necessary, right? So let's say you went with your wife somewhere on a vacation and you come back and you tell me, oh, my wife and I, we were talking business, so it should be deducted out of the business. That's not enough cause or reason for it to be a business deduction. Yeah, I can I can promise you if the IRS in their recent wave of new hires and all those auditors are going to be yeah. putting out there, if, if they audit that, will not hold up. Right, right. However, for the CE class, absolutely. Definitely. Absolutely. For the CE class, for the doctor's travel, mm-hmm. for the lodging while you're there and the meals, mm-hmm. that's going to hold up, of course. But if you take the whole family, they're not going to let you deduct everybody's airfare. Let's see. What about insurance? Insurance. You know, I think the majority of our clients, small dental, one general dental, mm-hmm. one doctor practices, mm-hmm. don't offer health insurance for the uh, staff. For those that don't offer the health insurance, then really the only insurance that you've got that the practice is paying for is your malpractice and your office overhead. That's generally, and and your umbrella policy. And and that's not going to be much money. Mm. That's probably going to be less than $10,000 a year. Mm -hmm. So as a percentage, I don't know know, what that is, but it's very minuscule, minuscule. Now, if you're offering health insurance, then there's a lot of different rules that come into play. And and we can discuss those with anybody that's interested. We even have a company that would give you a bid at no obligation on providing health insurance for your staff if that's something you are interested in. Right. And sometimes it might actually be cheaper than acquiring health insurance yourself. Yeah, a lot of times it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, People don't think it, that it might be, but uh, there's some quirks in the insurance industry that enable them to give you a group policy for a small group, uh, maybe five or less people, that might be less costly than if you were buying your own individual policy for yourself. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Exactly. What else should we cover? I Uh, feel like, you know, we covered the general dentists. Those those are the major categories. Let's take a quick look here at what? Pediatric? Yeah. And how do some of those things change for the the pediatric? Well, you know, the average collections for a pediatric practice are going to be higher than an average collections for a general one dentist practice. As a result of that, I think that the staff salaries, the team salaries are going to be less as a percentage. I said 26% before. I think, you know, 24% is more reasonable than for the uh, pediatric practice. Rent's going to be a little higher because pediatric offices tend to be a little more elaborately decorated. And I think they're actually updated more frequently, too, because, you know, you've got a different kind of patient. And yeah. I think they're more demanding. And they like color parents. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, no, that absolutely makes sense. I think the big thing over here that I'm seeing is the lab fees. Yeah, I was going to say the big difference is lab fees. You know, for pediatric, lab fees are minuscule. I mean, less than 1%. Right. And so that's almost, you know, 8% or 10% that is going into the doctor's pocket that wasn't being paid for overhead. True. As true. it is in a general dental practice. True. Now, why is it that the take-home amount percentage for a pediatric dentist is higher than a general dentist? Well, like for that reason, you know, when we said lab fees are almost non-existent, Mm -hmm. uh, even though staff salaries are maybe a little lower, Mm -hmm. you know, but 
your your dental supplies are going to be uh, about the same. Not a big difference there. Yes, it looks about the same. Yeah. Right. So no other real big differences. Really, the big difference is the lab fees. And so the the overhead for a pediatric practice is generally going to be, let's say, 55%, mm-hmm. take home 45 as opposed to a general dental dentist taking home a third. Mm-hmm. That's true. And I'm also thinking from an advertising standpoint for a pediatric dentist, it's going to be a little bit different because, yes, your patients are the children, but you're attracting the parents. You know, it seems like in the United States, everybody wants to do what's best for their kids. So they're going to take the kids to the dentist. Mm-hmm. And, and so every pediatric dentist is going to have new patients. They're going to get the kids. They're going to get their share. So when they come in, you, know, you don't have to do much marketing. You do market to the parents, of course. You don't market to the kids unless you're going to their school and giving sure. them some toothbrushes to take home. And parents say, well, where'd this come from? You know. Right. Uh, so there are ways to do that. But still, you're not spending near as much on marketing in a pediatric practice as you right. do with a general dentist. And I think they rely a lot more on word of the mouth because it's their children. They want to make sure that the pediatric dentist that they're going to go to is thoroughly vetted because oh, yeah. it's also a judgment on their parenting. Yes, absolutely. So advertising for a pediatric dentist may require more effort, but not necessarily cost-wise. Money, Money. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. The next one I have here is for an orthodontist. Orthodontist. Yeah. So their take-home is similar to a pediatric dentist. It's about 47%. So I would like to give a range like between 45 to maybe 48%. And when I'm looking at this, I think... Yeah, salaries look about the same. Well, except you don't have a hygienist in an ortho practice. So your, your salaries are substantially less overall. I mean, you're looking at maybe what the statistics in front of us are showing uh, 21% as opposed to the others at 26. Yeah, I didn't. And of course, your way. lab fees are, you know, you don't exactly have lab fees, you have orthodontic supplies. That's true. And it's about the same as lab fees, maybe a little lower than lab fees in a general dental office. Right. Uh, but the, the the orthodontist should be taking home somewhere close to fifty percent, you know, forty seven percent or so, yeah, of collections. Now, what's standing out here to me is their advertising is higher. Yeah, and I think it's been more challenging in the last few years for orthodontists. Uh, typically, you know, for orthodontists, ideally, you would want your office to be across the street from a high school uh, or maybe a, a junior high school. But these days, I think orthodontists do about as much marketing as general dentists, and they used to depend more on referral sources than they do today. I think today, a lot of the marketing is direct to consumer as opposed to uh, trying to entice referral sources, general dentists, to refer to you. A lot of the general dentists have gotten into orthodontics. They're doing Invisalign. Mm -hmm. uh, And so the the orthodontists can't really depend on them to refer as many patients as they have historically. That makes sense. But the gross receipts, even for one doctor ownership. Oh, they're substantially higher than general dentist. All right. So those are the three I can think of that I feel like our listeners would be most interested in. I agree. I think those, uh, of course, there are the, the periodontist and the oral surgeons. But, you know, those are, for most of our listeners, I don't think that they're interested in those numbers. Right. And, but we do have those numbers. So yeah. if you're ever eager to know what they are, feel free to reach us and we, we will be more than happy to go over this whole entire thing with you. In fact, uh, tell them about your course that you offer. 
Oh, yes. This is an idea that came up where while we were doing the podcast, because, you know, for every episode that we had to research, we found out more and more that our listeners, especially in the dental world, the clinicians are not always given enough training on the business side of dentistry. And of course, that's how we came up with the podcast. But then later, we got more and more requests on more of a hands-on training or teaching of uh, the knowledge. How, we, how to read their financial statements. That's true. Yes. So that's definitely part of it. Yes. And then, of course, the stats. Like Now, I know what this is. I see this on a regular basis. So this is not scaring me. I'm not bored by it. But an average person, I promise you, if they look at this, it may look intimidating. Well, and I tell a lot of our clients, if you're having trouble sleeping at night, read your financial statements. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but, absolutely. but we can provide some insight. Ash has got a little course that, that yeah. he'll uh, teach. And, and yeah. we, we look at our clients. Some of our clients have, have taken the little course and, and uh, yeah. it, it's great information. Yeah, they love yeah, it. It's yeah. well received. It's educational. Mm-hmm. It helps you understand your financial statement and not only the financial statement, but it helps you understand how your practice compares to the, your peers. And, and what to look for. What, what, you know, key performance indicators should you be looking at and monitoring every month? There we go. Yes. Yes. Key indicators. A lot of times I feel like the resources that we're sharing with our clients, they're not being able to utilize it fully. And honestly, in my opinion, I feel like it's a shame. So, uh, but a little bit of uh, like basic financial background is needed to be able to read these. So regardless of the consulting phone calls where we go over these numbers, sometimes because they don't have that foundational knowledge, uh, they fall behind or they feel like they're still not understanding. So this class is designed where we are, we are going to cover some of those basics, some, some of those foundational things that you may need to know to read the reports, to better understand the numbers, to be able to make decisions on what to do and how to convey that to your team members, as well as utilize yourself. Again, this is all for growth. So you can do better. I know most of the people as they entered 2023, they were very optimistic and you should stay on that path. Just continue on that path and make sure you're acquiring all the knowledge that is needed to be able to grow to that mark or that point that you have foreseen yourself to be at. Accomplish your goals. Absolutely. Absolutely. We can help. Yes. So if you guys need to know more information, please feel free to reach us at info at enassociates.com regarding the class or regarding anything, really. And we'll do our best to get back to you in a timely fashion. Sounds great. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Thank you. Thanks for listening today. Be sure to subscribe to Beyond by Wings on your favorite podcast platform. For more information, you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, or reach out to us on our website. You can also shoot us an email at info at eandassociates.com.